It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Give or take a few thousand. I figure the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. big dollar sign there where most women have a heart so play it smart stay in character and you'll have money plenty of it george will have it he'll blow it all on you johnny i'm no good for anybody else i'm not pretty and i'm not very smart so please don't leave me alone anymore so what makes you think or know that you're gonna have several hundred thousand dollars because i do i just can't talk about it that's all not even to me your little share i shouldn't have even mentioned i was going to have it not that I mind. I know I can trust you. But if these other guys these ever... These other guys? I can't talk about it, Cherry. You've been talking. I just spilled to her. Why well, didn't ask. What, do you think I'm crazy? I wouldn't jerk you, clown. Come on, clown. Sing us a chorus from Pagliacci. Hey, where's the jerk? Where's George? everyone. On behalf of Stephen Rigg and myself, Jason Furlong, we welcome you back to the Kubrick's Universe podcast. Now we have the third part in our Thecatria Kubrick series. This is a new roundtable discussion which was hosted by Mark Lentz and moderated by James Robert Sherman with contributions by the delightful, dedicated, detailed, and somewhat deranged members of the SCAS Academy. Now, for any new listeners, SCAS is the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, which is the largest group on social media for all things Stanley. Now, this episode, we are joined by Nick Lamatina, Jonathan Harvey, Stan Dorfman, Kathy Metzger, David Sukavati, Scott Edwards, John Harrig, Brian Kahn, and Robert Kohler. This time, we take a look at Kubrick's third feature film, The Killing. This is Thecatria Kubrick. The 1956 film noir, The Killing, directed by Stanley Kubrick and produced by James B. Harris, adapts Lionel White's novel, Clean Break, starring Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, and Vince Edwards. The cast also includes Marie Windsor, 
Elisha Cook Jr., J.C. Flippin, and Timothy Carey. While playing chess in Harvard Square, Kubrick encountered producer James B. Harris, leading to the formation of the Harris-Kubrick Pictures Corporation in 1955. Harris secured the rights to clean break for $10,000, and at Kubrick's suggestion, enlisted novelist Jim Thompson to pen the script. Sterling Hayden was signed for $40,000, though United Artists offered only $200,000 in financing. Harris covered the shortfall with 80 grand of his own money and a $50,000 loan from his father. The film was initially titled Clean Break and or Bed of Fear, and it marked the first of three collaborations between Harris and Kubrick as producer and director. Ruth Sabotka, Kubrick's wife at the time, served as the art director. The Hollywood Cinematographers Union told Kubrick that he could not be both director and cinematographer, so veteran cinematographer Lucien Ballard was hired to shoot the picture. Kubrick and Ballard clashed over creative decisions during filming, exemplified by a disagreement over the use of a wide-angle lens. The film, despite poor box office performance upon its release, did receive critical acclaim. New York Times film critic A.H. Weiler found it a diverting melodrama, praising its captures of Bay Meadows' track. Variety commended the acting and suspenseful storytelling, noting Hayden's restrained characterization and Cook's standout performance. The positive critical reception caught the attention of MGM, which offered Kubrick and Harris $75,000 to write, direct, and produce another film, which led to Paths of Glory. In 2012, Roger Ebert included The Killing in his list of great movies, writing that he considered it Kubrick's first mature feature. Quentin Tarantino acknowledged the film's influence on Reservoir Dogs, describing it as his first take on the heist movie genre. So now may we present to you this rather in-depth conversation on The Killing, which was recorded on September 23rd, 2023. Okay, go ahead, Nick. So, as a matter of fact, I spoke with James directly on on the messenger and you know james said you know what a what a what a change from last week to this week you know as far as kubrick going leaps and bounds and that's actually the truth and here's why the script is a lot stronger so you see some growth there learning how to tell a story and tell a story with with conflict there's conflict throughout the entire narrative i i researched a bit about uh, Quentin and Quentin's feelings about this film because it's a heist film and he started his career. Well, obviously he did the other works first, which was Natural Born Killers and From Dust Till Dawn. And there was another one with Christopher Walken. I'm forgetting the name. Anyway, and then he did Reservoir Dogs. And that's when he found Lawrence Bender and they got the money through Harvey Keitel and so on and so forth. So I tried to think of how this movie would influence a guy like him and I think the, the parallels are obvious. I mean, I know that he he was big with Chinese cinema, but this movie in particular, the fact that there was a group of men all from different walks of life, they all have their own kind of things going on, but they all come together for this heist. So I thought that that was really unique because you hadn't seen that before in many films of the era. Structurally, I liked it because you knew where it was going. And at least you thought you knew where it was going, but you, you, you kind of, had some conflict within 
within the conflict, and that was, of course, that one of the femme fatales was two-timing her husband, there was a, a younger lover, and, and things of that nature. I, I liked, it, it was noirish, and, and again, the soundtrack for the time where everything works, even today, it still works, it's still engaging, because you don't know exactly what's going to transpire in the end. And I said to myself, because I this is the first time I saw it in many years, so I had forgotten it, actually, because I bought it on DVD, watched it, and then just totally forgot it, that it was actually very, very graphic for the time. The, the actual murder scene of the jilted lover was was very, very poignant. You don't you didn't see that so graphically back then, I, I would think. I mean, I, I don't know if it falls into the into the genre of noir per se it could it could i don't it's not a it's not a detective story it's just crime so that's the subgenre would be crime i think i thought the narration was a little bit unnecessary at exactly 345 on that saturday afternoon in the last week of september marvin unger was perhaps the only one among the hundred thousand people at the track who felt no thrill at the running of the fifth race he was totally disinterested in horse racing and held a lifelong contempt for gambling. Nevertheless, he had a $5 win bet on every horse in the fifth race. He knew, of course, that this rather unique system of betting would more than likely result in a loss, but he didn't care. For after all, he thought, what would the loss of 20 or $30 mean in comparison to the vast sum of money ultimately at stake? I understand why they did it, and again, sometimes, you know, when you look at earlier works from, from now that we're seeing stanley's earlier works he kind of needs that for himself i think to work with the writer you know to, to 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 make the story a bit clearer but i i i thought that it was for the most part it was okay but you didn't need the narration and the last thing i it's actually a question for everybody you know a lot of these older films you hear about that come on johnny help me johnny and all that language is it called transatlantic language is that what we're hearing when they when they speak with a little bit of, of an embellished accent, like, what do you want, Tony? Or To me, I want to know where that comes from and why they felt, because I've never understood, I've looked it up and no one's ever given me a reason why that, that transatlantic speech made its way into Hollywood and stayed for so long until really, I, I would say, maybe the mid-60s when the movie Brat started to come up and, 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 and change things, you know, and take over from the studio system. So that's really my question. I'm finished. Jonathan, you had raised your hand. When I rewatched this, since I was watching it on Amazon.prime, I occasionally these little trivia things pop up on the side if there's something turned on and some things I found. Apparently, original audiences found the non chronological structure confusing. And then they, the studio asked Kubrick to re edit it in chronological order. And then the chronological version turned out to be even more confusing than the non-chronological uh, version. So they went, wound up by going back to the original cut. But then the decision to add a voiceover was a fairly last-minute decision. So that was interesting. I found out a few interesting things about the actors. Apparently, in the scene where the fellow starts the fight at the bar... There's an extra way at the back, at the farthest back of the bar, and it's apparently Rodney Dangerfield. And the actress who played the two-timing, two-timing Elijah Cook's wife was apparently 
head of a Screen Actors Guild for many years, I guess before Ronald Reagan, I guess, and was a devout Mormon. And so the, these are tidbits I found interesting. But I read some stuff on the movie, and there is some critic who thinks that chess is a metaphor in this movie more than any other Stanley Kubrick movie. He thinks that the whole caper is a little bit like a chess game and that that scene in the middle where the guy says you didn't take into account all the possible counter moves, you should have seen this possibility is sort of a statement of the thesis of the whole film. And then he also, after supervising the chess game, he makes a whole statement about the people want mediocrity. They don't want you to be too too outstanding. They don't want you to be an idiot. They want you to just be in between and you should aspire for mediocrity or something like that. That's a loose paraphrase. And in one sense, Johnny Clay is doing that, but he's doing it by trying to pull off this heist. And so there are a couple of critics who argue that this is actually the thematic, pivotal scene of the film, that this guy is stating what is sort of, sort of is and sort of isn't the philosophy of the film in that and both in his comments on the chess game. I, I noticed myself, this is the first of three Stanley Kubrick films in which there's an actual chess game in the film. And in all three cases, the the what happens in the game is sort of a commentary on the film as a whole. So, so this is also Kubrick's first widescreen film, which is another interesting thing. He apparently had a professional cinematographer, which he they fought with. He they didn't get along well together. And this is the movie that inspired Kirk Douglas to hire Stanley Kubrick to direct Paths of Glory. So it's a it's a fascinating fit. And I also learned just a week ago, I have read the source material for five of Stanley Kubrick's movies, but not all 11 of the ones that have source material. But apparently Kubrick did change the ending in this one. I learned that only a week ago. This is not one of the five movies that I've read the source material <laughs> and but apparently he does does actually get away with the money at, at the end of the novel which is actually what gives the novel its title clean break there's also another novel by this guy Lionel White that they were looking at but Hollywood would not allow any movie to, that dealt with the subject matter of kidnapping children and so the other Lionel White movie was discarded for that reason. And oh, I guess the other thing is the best-known actor in this movie is Elijah Cook. He's not the main character, but he's he's much better known than Sterling and Hyden. I mean, he's been in everything from the Maltese Falcon to Star Trek. And I, I'd never learned anything about his life. I mean, it turned out he had an interesting life. He lived in a very remote, rustic, small town, did not hang out in Hollywood circles, led a very rural life, and only came to Hollywood when he got work. And so that I, I found all that interesting. Apparently not at all like the characters he frequently portrays. But he, he's easily the most recognizable face in the movie. 
Thank you, Jonathan. That's some great background info, for, and we'll discuss some of it later, I bet. So our next three people will be the mods, Stanley, James, and then me. I love the comments made so far, both by Nick and by Jonathan. Thank you very much. I am not a professional film critic, uh, Bob, as you might know, but independently, I've made my own sheet. When I look at films now for the second or third time, I've got categories like characters, opening, quotes, storyline, camera shots, music, locations, themes, messages, surprises, and ending. So I'm trying to think that way as I watch the film in addition to the enjoyment. I seem to remember somewhere that Stanley Kubrick was quoted as saying, when you watch a film, don't think about the message as much as it how the, the film or the piece of art made you feel. If I'm misquoting him, it's something like that. And I'll try to find the exact quote. Jonathan, I love that you brought up that the film, one way to look at this film is kind of through the lens of it's a chess game. Whereas if one piece of this plot of this heist puzzle went wrong, then one would have to change the way you move on the chessboard. It changes the entire game if one thing was out of was out of whack. For example, the character Marvin in the film shows up drunk. He wasn't supposed to show up at the racetrack, remember? So that could have been disastrous for the whole film. And Mike, the bartender, recognized that Marvin has shown up drunk. Give me a double bourbon, please. Don't you think you've had enough, pal? Your attention, please. The horses are now on the track for the second race at six furlongs. I also took note this time of that scene when Maurice, the wrestler at the chess club, and Johnny sit down, sit down to have a conversation. And I also thought it was a pivotal moment in the film when, John, when Maurice says something along the lines of, it's best to be mediocre because individuality is a monster. Gangsters and artists are similar in that masses want to see them destroyed at the peak of their glory. And Johnny responds by saying, life is like a glass of tea. You have not yet learned that in this life you have to be like everyone else, the perfect mediocrity, no better, no worse. Individuality is a monster, and it must be strangled in its cradle to make our friends feel comfortable. You know, I often thought that the gangster and the artist are the same in the eyes of the masses. They are admired and fear of worship, but there is always present underlying wish to see them destroyed at the peak of their glory. Yeah, like the, um, like the man said, life is like a glass of tea, huh? Oh, Johnny, my friend. You never were very bright, but I love you anyway. So I looked up the quote, life, life is like a, grass, a glass of tea, because I wanted to make sure that I understood what Johnny meant at that moment. And I take it to mean that there's a lot to be experienced in life. So go for it. Don't leave any stone unturned in your pursuit of having 
experiences. A couple other things that I noticed this time that I had never noticed before. In the scene, when Sherry is pestering her husband, George, at the breakfast table uh, about whether or not today is the day for the heist, if you listen very carefully during that scene, there's the faintest sound of a ticking clock, as if it's getting closer and closer and closer. Gosh, honey, did I wake you up? I'm sorry. I, I just couldn't right. sleep somehow. Can I get you anything? Would you like some more coffee? No, I guess not. Nice of you to offer, though. I, I don't know. I'm just nervous and restless. I, I'll be all right. Go on back to bed, will you? No, I won't. Even if I don't get up to get my husband's breakfast, the least I can do is sit with him while he has his coffee. Gosh, Sherry, you sure you feel all right? I'm sorry. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. I deserved it. I know I've been irritable moody lately, and I haven't acted like I should. It's just I can't stand living like this. This crummy apartment and a hamburger oh, for well, dinner. You haven't been so bad, baby. Yes, I have. But things are going to be different, you'll see. We get all that money and have so many nice things. I'll stop thinking about myself so much. Your problems will be my problems. Whenever you're worried about something, like now, for instance, is it the robbery? Is that what you're worrying about? Yeah, I guess it is a little. I have no reason to. I know it's going to be all right. Oh, so naturally, you'd be a little upset at a time like this. Today, isn't it? Huh? Oh, it makes you think that. Just because I couldn't sleep, it doesn't mean that I... Oh, I know my Georgie. He can't fool me. I'm right, aren't I, darling? Today is the day we get all that money. No, you ain't. It isn't today. If you don't stop pestering me, trying to find out something you have no reason to know, there ain't going to be no money. Well, George, how can you... I'm in it, Sherry. Now I'm getting fed up. You heard what Johnny told you to stop butting in. Mind your own business. He'd, hog, he'd call his whole thing off. And he told me something else, too, which I neglected to tell you. That if I did butt in, as you and he choose to call it, that he'd break my neck. Well, maybe he had reason to. He wanted to make you understand that he means business. Well, I've got to say is you've certainly changed your tune since he and his friends slapped you around. I was pretty sore about that, but after all, what could they do? You said yourself they acted pretty reasonable. We had no reason to hold a grudge. But I'm not going to argue with you, George. If you let people beat you up and then take their side against your own life. you did, life. Sherry. You said, look, I wanted to quit. You wouldn't let me. You said I had no reason to. Anyway, Johnny didn't lay a hand on me. None of the guys did but Randy. I was going to tell you something about your dear friend Johnny, but since you feel about him like you do, I take his word against mine. What about him? What were you going to tell me? Let's stop the conversation right there. What were you going to tell me, Sherry? I don't think I can tell you when you feel like you do about him. Not having any faith in me and keeping secrets. We won't have any secrets. What happened? Well, I tried to tell you about this the other night, but you were so upset, and every time I tried to say anything, you cut me off. I also thought that Sherry's performance, that's Marie Windsor, that she pries that information out of George at the level of an experienced FBI or CIA investigator. It doesn't matter, does it, darling? The only thing that really matters is how I feel about you now, isn't it? It is today, isn't it? How about when Marvin, and we don't really know the background between Marvin and Johnny, other than they know each other, from earlier, before Johnny went away. But Marvin, is, is there a hint 
we, we know that Marvin is like a father figure or he wants to be a father figure to Johnny, but he suggests to them that they go away together. Now, what's that, what's that all about? Is that a hint of homosexuality? What time is it? Uh, it's early. Uh, it's only seven. You better go back to sleep after I leave. I, uh, I just wanted to say goodbye. Till tonight, that is. Everything's all set. Should go perfectly. But if it doesn't, if anything goes wrong, why? Just don't talk about this with anyone. You'll be in the clear for everything except being short on your books, and I don't think they'll be too rough. Oh, I'm not worried about that. Matter of fact, I'm not worried about anything. I just wish there was something more I could do to help. You've done your part. I only hope we can do ours as well. We, uh, we'll probably never see each other again after we split the money and break up tonight, but in my book, you'll always be a stand-up guy. Johnny, I... I don't know how to say this, and I don't even know if I have the right, but I've always thought maybe you're like my own kid. Yeah, you can say anything you want. You've had a lot of rough breaks, and maybe you've made a few mistakes, but... After today, the good Lord willing, you'll be a new man, a rich man. And that can make a lot of difference. You've got a lot of life ahead of you, a lot of people to meet, people of quality and substance. What do you get now? Wouldn't it be great if we could just go away, the two of us, and let the old world take a couple of turns and... He hints to Johnny that he might be marrying the wrong person. It can be pretty serious and terrible particularly if it's not the right person. Getting married, I mean. You better go back to sleep. The uh, seventh race starts about 4.30 if you want to catch it on the radio. I'll be back here about 7 o'clock. What's that based on? We only saw them together in one prior scene in the film earlier on when he meets Faye and Johnny together. Now, Faye, Faye is, is the extreme opposite of Sherry. Very interesting. The, the the women in this film, very interesting. Thank you, Stanley. Excellent. James. Yeah, Stanley, I'd like to mention uh, that has been mentioned in a few places before, the homosexual element between Marvin the, and, and Johnny, and that's kind of been touched upon. And that's what I got from that last scene they did together before the before the heist started right and so it's i think you're on to something there because i think it's been mentioned in other places one of the things i'd like to mention steven spielberg described stanley kubrick in his filmmaking as some artists start by drawing you know small tiny little uh you know start by drawing tiny little imprints and stuff like that and then the bigger picture gets you know it gets larger for them right spielberg said stanley kubrick started out with huge brush strokes and huge you know, the passionate movements and actions. Okay. And I think one of the things is to touch upon what Nick and I were talking about before the meeting was, was that, yes, this, you know, some people had mentioned last week that fear and desire, that there was a quantum leap between fear and desire and, and the killer's kiss. And though the killer's kiss is better than fear and desire, you know, it's like, it's like, no, the killing is just an incredible awakening. Okay. Of genius. In my opinion, the huge, you know the boldness by which Stanley Kubrick made this film, right? The break, the 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 out of chron- the out of order, broken up narrative that he uses was just so original for its time. 
And it was, you know, like I said, ultimate, I think the blueprint for heist movies going forward. I mean, just two, what, two or three years after this, they made uh, Ocean's Eleven, which had very similar, you know, as far as a heist going. It's like, I think Ocean's Eleven was, was, was more basically the killing with more glamorous actors, right? But when you look at also, so anyway, the thing is, is that when, when Stanley was given, a decent enough budget and such an incredible cast. This is a great cast. When you look at that, I mean, Sterling Hayden, one of the great character actors, right? You know, as is Marie Windsor, who plays the, you know, the two-timing wife, you know, J.C. Flippin, you know, obviously the the great Joe Turkle, you know, Timothy Carey, James Edwards, Joe Sora, Sars, what am I saying? Tom Sawyer, Sawyer, okay. And, you know, when given all of these opportunities and given all of these t- tools, okay, Stanley Kubrick really showed the quantum leap between fear and desire and, 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 and then the killing, right? Okay. Cause I think that's his true first masterpiece is the killing. I know a lot of people say the path of glory and a path of glory is a masterpiece, but the killing really, really also is in that same category as far as I'm concerned. And so I just love the boldness and the, the confidence. That Stanley Kubrick had that went from 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 picking his way through with fear with the killer's kiss and then just absolutely whatever he learned between the killer's kiss and and the and the killing it was an accelerated education and we saw that on the screen okay and so you know for me I, that that was just the, the 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 biggest joy of the film was just seeing this guy okay who had just graduated from film school really and the thing is it's like and he came out with one of them one a very influential film nick as you mentioned right the influence on tarantino yeah is not is not ele- certainly reservoir dogs and elements of 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 pulp fiction okay and but i mean i think it had been be, be, become sort of the heist film you know epic so for me that was the real the the real enjoyment that i had of this film was just seeing how bold and bright and just going for it and an ego that says i can do this right you know and i just one of the last things i wanted to mention was was that it is my dad's favorite ending of any movie he loved the desolation and talk about nihilism and we got to see stanley kubrick's nihilism perfectly right that the world is crazy and insane and we have no control over it and that so anyway my time is up but um it was i love this film it's always been a joy to watch and i i I, one last thing is like my dad was just a regular i think i've mentioned this before just a regular blue collar guy right but he's so connected with these films as he did with paths of glory and full metal jacket so i think that's the genius of stanley kubrick is his ability to connect with everyone so that's that's my comments Excellent, James. So I'm going to start. I'm just going to read from my notes. First off, after all these years, I finally realized why Johnny had to buy that ridiculous suitcase. The money was going to be divided four ways, so his original share would have fit in his carry-on bag. It's just player's nightmare figures throughout the movie, and I would imagine it to be, quote, you have a complicated plan worked out. And then your opponent throws in an unexpected move and you have to improvise to try to save your overall plan. I love that the two guys who do nothing except lean against the wall of the airport, they win. All the guys who did all the work and stress, they all lose. This is the first real Kubrick movie to me that checks all the boxes, characteristic cinematography, great music and editing. 
and a certain kind of story. Someone said last week, I think in this group, that everything is about the blocking for plays and also movies. And I was struck by that for the first time in this movie. Every scene is carefully planned out with camera moves and the initial and final positions of everyone in the scene. Also, similarly to how in Killer's Kiss, Frank Silvera, as the most experienced actor, knows how to fully articulate his performance so that every moment has some interest to it. So too, I think Kubrick has learned that something interesting must be happening every moment throughout the movie, and he works very hard to achieve that. Although the film is very wordy, a whole lot is only communicated visually. So I would mark that as a major advance in Kubrick's storytelling style. The information stream is demanding of the viewer. I love the point of view shot for George after he shoots everyone and we see his hand reach out for the door. That's like in The Shining. This film is more stagey and theatrical than the first two. And I wonder how much credit Ruth Sabatka should get introducing Stanley to these kinds of ideas. Sherry's death scene is even operatic. Similarly, the lighting of the complicated scenes is well done. And maybe Stanley did learn a lot about that from Lucien Ballard, the experienced cinematographer he was working with, given that he was an idea sponge. All we ever hear about Ballard's contribution is the wide-angle lens story and that he botched the racetrack second unit footage. But I want to give him some credit. Uh, sideways tracking and dissolves are two heavily used motifs. Every character in the film is enmeshed in the events through their relationship with another character. With this third film, I now realize how dark Kubrick's worldview was. He never has good prevailing or making a difference. He's not interested in those kinds of stories. My dad watched it with me, and his first comment was, why would anyone want to make or watch a movie about these kinds of people? He did feel it was a good <laughs> film for students interested in the studying the sophisticated technique. Apropos of the above, I was listening to a podcast that Vivian was on. John Philip recommended it to me. And she tells how, as a 10-year-old, she saw a TV show about murderers and what they thought in their heads. And she flipped out because she thought she must be a murderer too. Stanley came into her room to find out why she was screaming. And she explained and he said, quote, Vivian, you're meant to think everything. It's what you choose to do that makes you who you are. I think Kubrick wants us to think everything with his films. And finally, with his first two movies, it feels like it's more about the narrative and what happens. And here I think he's more aware of the movie as an experience on its own, besides just the surface story. Everything works together as do notes in a symphony. And that's it. Okay, so Kathy, you are next. Okay, so I discovered something awful this morning when I tried to rewatch it, that Amazon Prime now has commercials. No. Within the movie. And that not only that, I'm pretty sure they cut a scene or two. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I'd seen the movie a couple of times. But I a few things struck me. One of them was about Sherry, who's you know an awful person, but it struck me that she has most of the humorous lines 
in the film. You know, what what is most noticeable about her is her cruelty. But some of her lines like that, well, she was my age at the beginning of the story. She's older now. Kind of those lines are actually kind of funny. And I don't think anybody else really has any funny lines. Hello. Feeling okay? Fine. I've been kind of sick today. I keep getting pains in my stomach. Maybe you got a hole in it, George. Do you suppose you have? A hole in it? How would I get a hole in my stomach? How would you get one in your head? Well, fix me a drink, George. I think I'm developing some pains myself. Sherry, can't I ever say anything at all without you joking me about it? Uh, hurry up with that drink, George. The pains are getting worse. I saw something kind of nice coming home on the train tonight. Something, well, uh, kind of sweet. Candy bar, George? No, not a candy bar, don't it? It was people. This couple sitting just in front of me. Oh, they weren't young exactly. I guess the woman was about your age. A little senile, you mean, with one foot and a big toe in the grave? You want to hear this or not? Do you or not, Sherry? I can't wait. Go ahead and throw me, George. Well, anyway, like I say, they were sitting just in front of me, and I could hear what they were saying. Well, part of the... They weren't young exactly, and they weren't really she old. She was about my age, you said. Not anymore. Maybe she was when you started telling this story, but not now. Anyway, she was calling him Papa, and he was calling her Mama. And the climax to this exciting story, the moral, the punchline, George. Forget it, Sherry. Just thought I'd tell you about it, but I might have known. Oh, I know. You want to bet I know? I'll give you seven to five. Cut it out, will you, Sherry? I'm tired. I don't feel so good. You want me to call you Papa, isn't that it, George? And you want to call me Mom? You know all the answers. Go right ahead. Of course, it may be the last word you ever say, but I'll try to kill you as pain. I gotta go out tonight. I don't suppose there's anything for dinner. Well, of course there is, darling. There are all sorts of things. We have steak and asparagus and potatoes. I don't smell nothing. Well, that figures, because you're too far away from it. Too far away from well, it? Certainly. You don't think I had it all cooked, do you? It's all down the shopping center. Tell me something, would you, Sherry? Just tell me one thing. Why did you ever marry me anyway? Oh, George, when a man has to ask his wife that, well, he just hadn't met her, that's all. Well, I talk about it. Maybe it's all to the good in the long run. After all, if people didn't have headaches, what would happen to the aspirin industry? You used to love me. You said you did anyway. I seem to recall you made a memorable statement, too. Something about hitting it rich and having an apartment on Park Avenue and a different car for every day of the week. Not that I really care about such things, understand, as long as I have a big, handsome, intelligent brute like you. It would make a difference, wouldn't it? If I had money, I mean. How would you define money, George? Now, if you're thinking of giving me your collection of Roosevelt I mean big money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. You really don't feel well, do you? Are you sure that pain's in your stomach? I'm going to have it, Sherry. Hundreds of thousands, maybe a half a million. <laughs> of course you are, darling. Did you put the right address on the envelope when you sent it to the North Pole? Go ahead and laugh. Wait and see. Maybe you won't be laughing so hard in a few days. Because the plot is so complex and fairly fast moving, and there are so many characters, it means that no one character is very fully developed. You know, there just isn't really time for much character development. But, sorry, my voice, I got to losing my voice here. What else was I thinking? Oh, a couple of 
sorry, observations you made, Mark. They, what your father said about why would anybody want to make a movie about people like this, that's actually a fairly common critique of Kubrick. A lot of people are not super Kubrick fans because there just aren't very many likable characters in the films. But yeah, there was nobody to really like in this movie very much. I mean, to begin with, the plot that they're hatching here involves killing a horse and potentially killing or injuring other horses and jockeys. So it's not just a heist for money. They're starting out really doing something immoral. Well, not that theft isn't, but they're, they're starting out with a violent crime. But it also struck me that how on earth would anybody think that a plot with, you know, a scheme with so many moving parts and so many people and such precise timing, how would you think that would work? <laughs> you know, how is that really going to work out? And the final thing is, I think it does have one of the weakest moments in Kubrick, which is when everybody dies in that room. You know, when I saw that film in the theater, a lot of the audience actually laughed when they went to the shot of all the bodies because you would, it just doesn't seem like there are enough bullets flying around to do that. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's it for me before I lose my voice. Thanks, Kathy. Awesome. That was great. That was very good. Okay, David? Okay, I first saw the killing in film class, the 16-millimeter print, then recorded it off of Turner Classic Movies, and then on DVD, where I can see the correct screen ratio for the first time. I paid attention to the race track footage. The title shot may have been used for the seventh race that Red Lightning was in. Jim Harrison... Kubrick polished the production values after Killer's Kiss. Better locations were chosen and better usage of the locations. Kubrick liked Jim Thompson's story structure. Thompson, a paperback writer, contributed to the dialogue. I noticed how well written the dialogue was between George Elijah Cook and Sherry, played by Maria Windsor. Thompson's Catch line was used by the patrolman, Randy. What's the use of kicking? Also, it looks like Joe Turkle says hello to the officer as Randy walks into the bar. So they knew each other. Thompson also did a draft for Paz of Glory. Jim Harris did television work and distribution and was in his idea for the money the suitcase, and the little dog. There's a film, Don't Bother to Knock, with Richard Whitmark, Marilyn Monroe, and Anne Bancroft. There's a dog segment that reminded me of the woman and the dog in the killing. Kubrick may have been influenced by this film. Elijah Cook is featured, and Lucian Ballard was the cinematographer. Lucian's cinematography holds up well and may have laid the groundwork for how Lolita was filmed. The killing took 24 days to film, $200,000 from United Artists, and Harris had to raise $150,000.
In an interview by Philip, I think it's Garney, Sterling Halen respected Kubrick, liked the way he shot and how the camera was always moving. Everything was moving. I had great time on that picture. A good time with Elijah Cook. Had a good time with everybody. When Sterling Hayden's character, Johnny, goes to the locker room to get the weapon hidden in the flower box, I saw a similarity in music and camera moves and builds tension like Full Metal Jacket. There's a use of Latin music again a couple times, and Stanley's use of percussion as in Barry Lyndon and others like Dr. Strangelove. I also noticed the amount of officers it took to stop the disturbance caused by Maurice at the racetrack were similar to the amount of men that pulled Barry Lyndon off of Lord Bullington. The structure to me resembles a chess match. I noticed that as well. James Edwards plays a part where a racial slur is used against him. I recently saw him in an episode of The Fugitive as a boxer. In the book, Sterling Halen's character Johnny is killed. I did hear that, so that probably um, needs to be checked. I like this movie every time I see it. And one other thing, when George falls over with the birdcage, it appears a stunt parrot was used. That's good. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thank you. Great facts. Okay, Scott, go for it. Unmute, of course. I'll start by saying I have no great or original ideas, so let's just get that out of the way now. But instead... I'll make uh, one observation that came to mind in watching the movie again is that counter to the stereotype about Stanley Kubrick, this film is about people. And that's why the casting was so important to make these people as if they exist. You have the heisters and aside from the animal and bird treatment, these people are not bad people. They've run afoul of the law before, but they're not doing something with a motivation other than uh, happens to be their own personal needs. We have somebody who's making up for lost time and will run away and get married. We have somebody who's trying to make up for lost time and bad promises to make a marriage that won't work work because it still has that quixotic dream. We have somebody who wants to help his wife who is ill. We have somebody who thinks that he is the right person to go away with Johnny rather than the person he wants to marry. So if I were to subtitle the film, it might be Criminals for Love. <laughs> They're motivated by that, whether it makes any sense or not. The only bad people are those who want to take advantage of the heist. The two who are both to themselves and to others, manipulative and liars. And the question about why would somebody, your dad, why would somebody make a movie about somebody like these people? I say that's precisely the point because these are people we never see get attention. They're the people who give us our racetrack tickets. We get them from them. We get their drinks from them. They don't exist. We pass them on the sidewalk. They are not real people. And here we see that they have backgrounds. They have needs. And they think of themselves as 
never having gotten a break. And the end of the movie shows that they never will get the break. And that's why it's summed up perfectly. What does it matter? From a, from a stylistic standpoint, it's been pointed out before the kind of shots that we're seeing. And, and I look at it, I go, gee, he got this from Touch of Evil. Oh, that's another thing from Touch of Evil. Oh, the exterior shot and how long it is going up the hill and how choreographed it is. Touch of Evil, the, the lighting. Notwithstanding the fact that Touch of Evil was made after this movie. <laughs> so that's something to ponder, I guess. And then finally, as far as the Quentin Tarantino, I think that the, the type of characters and the way the characters are illuminated, similar to Reservoir Dogs and the bouncing around in, in time is similar to Pulp Fiction. So, you know, as, as you look back and forth, you see, well, there are uh, certain influences and last week, one thing that I was wondering about is how did Kubrick make such a leap to do Killer's Kiss and then to this? And in prayer, in preparing for Paths of Evil, uh, Paths of Glory, what I'm looking for is that there was a interview where he talks about going to the Museum of Modern Art and watching films there. One mentioned uh, was Max Ophuls, and I think that may be a key to his advancement: is studying film at the Museum of Modern Art. Just excellent, Scott. Okay, John, you're up next. Okay, so this time, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but always something new to discover. What I was thinking about this time, I guess, was how Kubrick always has interesting faces in his movie. It's kind of like you're looking at the Greek theater or something, or it's just like they're very unique and interesting faces. And so I, I look at the faces. I mean, Marie Windsor's face is just... Kind of like this, you know, it's a beautiful face, but it's just like malevolent. You know, there's just something about that face. And then you get uh, these other characters, the wrestler. When I first saw this film, it was during the Tarantino era. And I think I saw this film actually first. And then I saw like Pulp Fiction. And then I saw some of his others, his first one. And I, I felt at that moment, you know, there are these direct, connections between Coop. I mean, there's there's no doubt in my mind at the time because I saw them right in a row. There's these direct connections between the two. And I guess this time too, I noticed <laughs> the way he was filming Marie Windsor, it's like he was always trying to get like her breasts in the shot. <laughs> like every time I saw it, I was saying, oh, he's kind of like, he's having her angle this slight way just to get as much breast <laughs> in, the, in the scene as he could <laughs> to make her more sexualized and things like that. And I was thinking of is the story that Malcolm McDowell told of like Kubrick when he was selecting which women that Alex would grab the breasts of. He, he brought in a bunch of different breasts and had him like try them all out to figure out which actress he would select. But I was thinking, oh yeah, like Kubrick is definitely thinking, you know, he's a young kid too, but he's definitely thinking of that, these shots. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm always thinking, it's always poignant to me that James Edwards scene with the racism. It's like, I can't think of any other director that would have portrayed racism at that time in the 50s, you know, when things are, you know, racism being lost over. That's still like a poignant scene for me each time I, I see that. Sure is a nice day, ain't it? Yeah. Yes, sir, I didn't think it would be when I first got up this morning, but it turned out real fine. Kind of funny when you stop to look at it. Well, it's almost the same as it always is this time of year, but... I sure appreciate the way you treated me, mister. 
Well, it's not so much the money. Of course, I appreciate that, too, but, yeah, look, but it's more the way... Forget it. No, sir. I don't reckon I'll ever forget it. I brought you some luck, mister. You bet in this race, I figure you might need it. Oh, now, look, keep your junk and leave me alone, will you? Some, something wrong? You're wrong, nigga. Now, be a nice guy and go on about your business. Sure, boss. Sorry to have My mistake. And then I went back also to, you know, I was thinking about the first intellectual readings and discussions on Kubrick that I remember reading. And one was that book, uh, Listening to Stanley Kubrick, The Music in His Films. And it really made me see that film in a different light with like the main theme, like listening to Freed say like what he was doing because he was doing like, he had like two things where he had like part playing like in thirds and another in fourths. And, you know, you hit that beat, you know, like three times four or 12 seconds on every 12th beat, there's a clash. So they're both like off kilter on thirds and fourths. And then on that 12th beat, you're getting like that bang, bang. They're all coming together. So it's like you have, you know, I guess justice and criminality clashing it out in that theme. And, you know, her, her writings on the music and the shining, the music and the killing really like made me like rewatch the films and try and, you know, get the pacing. Like we're talking before about, you know, you can hear the clock in that scene with uh, George. And it starts off actually with like some smooth jazz, like she's going around listening to smooth jazz. And all of a sudden it stops in the scene. And then you get that, that click, 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 click of the clock. Tick, 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 and that really builds tension in that scene. We're down to our, our last two. Let's do Brian and then Robert K. And then we'll all have spoken. Nothing real inside of when you go with the end of this group. I think everything has been pretty much talked about. I the thing that strikes me is this is I think of the little kid in in trying to push push the envelope in a lot of ways here with this. So I watched this again and got the very strong homoerotic undertones. Somebody touched upon race before the handheld to show the violence. When you compile these things together, it's almost like in some ways he was pushing the norms that might be allowed or discussed in the late fifties or even the mid fifties and doing it very coyly in some ways, some ways a little more obvious. And I think we've talked about in a previous conversation or session just about whenever the motion picture codes came into effect. But I do think he was playing with them here because there's definitely things here that he was trying to interject without overtly, almost like the opposite of the narration, almost like not being as heavy handed as say the narration would have been. So that that's the one thing. The other thing is, you know, from it again, the quantum leap is just things that everybody's talked about. You know, this is really the first extended extended takes that he was doing with multiple characters in a room, the long tracking shots within sets that became, which will go on in Paths of Glory to be even amplified more. You know that he puts into place here, the handheld to show the violence that somebody touched upon earlier, which I don't know how common that was at that time and in the fifties. I'm, it, it, it's all, you know, kind of like pushing the envelope as an artist, you know, in terms of just making a, a, a straightforward crime drama. 
I had read that he originally submitted the version that we have to the studio. They didn't like it. They didn't think people would understand it. He went back, they edited in chronological order. And as I think Jonathan mentioned, that didn't work out. So I think the compromise was the heavy handed narration that ends up getting thrown in, which at that point, you know, he probably didn't have the total leverage. You know, he could only push, push his personality so far in terms of running a film. I mean, you know, and it, it was to some extent important to get to get the work out there um, as he still was a developing filmmaker. So that's mainly that's mainly it. I just think that there's a lot of subtlety, you know, maybe not so subtle, depends on who watches it. But, you know, there's definitely things there like the little kid in the candy store trying to trying to push back against things that may have not been as acceptable thing. And I think the confidence to try and do that as such a young filmmaker where you didn't have the cachet to be as bold and ballsy is probably the thing that comes out of this the most. And it's just a fun film to watch, you know, and my wife who had not seen it in many years enjoyed it. So that's it. Well, that's a great angle, Brian. Thank you. So there's a few baskets of topics that I was thinking of with, with the killing. One is of sort of a fundamental one of screenwriting. I think that The Killing is an excellent film for screenwriting students to watch because one of the basic fundamentals of dramatic writing is de determining what your character wants and then creating obstacles for that character to reach his or her goal. That's a basic building block element of dramatic storytelling and the killing provides almost a almost a perfect scientific lab study of uh, setting up character needs character wants and then setting up obstacles to realize those wants every single step of the narrative inserts a new obstacle to almost each one of the characters individually. It is an ensemble film, which, by the way, is almost unique among all of Kubrick's films. Almost all of his other films focus on a singular character at the center. The other one would be Strangelove, I would say. And yet, each one of these characters, I think we understand, is uh, delineated by the fact that they have individual needs and then in each case they reach they face obstacles so it's an excellent thing for screenwriter students to study for that remark another area i was looking at the killing this time from a documentary standpoint i was looking at yeah, every dramatic film is in essence a document of the moment in which it's filmed and shot where it's shot a real perverse aspect of the killing is where is this taking place? You have strong hints at times that we're in New York. One of the original reviews of the film identified the racetrack on the East Coast. In fact, actually, well, there, so we see also city views outside of windows that Rus Sabatka presumably created. 
And they're almost entirely New York-looking cityscapes, right? Vince Edwards' apartment has a classic lower Manhattan, you know, skyscape with the water towers and that characteristic New New York look. But there's unmistakable signs that we're actually in California. We're in Los Angeles, in fact. Locations, a great deal of this film was shot in Burbank. You can see NBC Studios down the street. You see Burbank signs. You see California signs. You see the flag of California, state flag of California, during the racetrack. And so is this film in Los Angeles? Is this film in New York? You have Olive Street, the meeting places on Olive Street. That's that's downtown. A lot of locations are in Bunker Hill. So where is this film? And that's an interesting tantalizing mystery about, about it. All right. That's, again, more great observations at a different angle. Jonathan. Well, I've, I've did got a list of small observations. One thing I meant to say in my original spiel is apparently this is the very first film ever made with a machine gun concealed inside a flat, tall flower box. And it was done again in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. It's been done in around five or six films since then. I was interested in the nonlinearity of it as adaption of the novel because I can think of three nonlinear novels. The the novel itself, the source novel, Clean Break, is also nonlinear. It has the same nonlinear structure as the movie, and that was one of the things that attracted Kubrick to it. A couple other classic novels with nonlinear structures. Cash-22 also has a nonlinear structure, and it's almost universally believed that one of the biggest mistakes of the film version was to tell the story in chronological order. And that didn't work. And so a couple years after the film came out, the novelist Joseph Heller wrote a stage adaptation of it in which he was very deliberate about keeping the non-chronological order in the stage play. And for some reason, that play caught on in popularity 30 years later. It didn't do well when it first came out. It's also the case, the, the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison is also a non-chronological structure. And the film keeps it, but it's doesn't work quite as well in the film as it does in the novel. For some reason, the non-chronological structure is reasonably easy to follow in the novel Beloved, and it's much harder to follow in the film in spite of the fact that it's following the book. And I'm just not sure, but there's some narrative device that Toni Morrison is using that allows the user to, the, the reader to keep track that they don't, have. The other thing is this is such an interesting contrast to Orson Welles whose first two movies continue to be his most critically acclaimed throughout the rest of his career. Susan Cain and Magnificent Amerson is such a contrast with Kubrick. The racetrack is near San Francisco. It's Bay Meadows. I've been there. It was torn down in 2009. Yes. And I actually once bet on a horse there and won $55. But one of the, I actually had a moderately surreal experience going past Bay Meadows once, which, well, I'll tell. The other thing is, I thought this film had a little more continuity errors in it. There are some definite continuity errors, more so than later Kubrick films. Like the scrap of paper 
that says apartment G and the when he's writing it it's APP and then when he's, you see it later it's APT. I mean there's there's actually a surprisingly large number of continuity errors in there and I'll just see where oh I got first yeah. The two other films with chess games are Lolita and two thousand one. They're similarly stating things about the themes of the story as the chess game in this. There's the in Lolita Humbert is playing a chess game with Charlotte's mother, with with Charlotte Hayes, Dolores Hayes' mother, and she leaves her queen accidentally exposed, and he says, I take your queen. And then then Lolita walks up and then the defeat of hell. I guess I guess I have time well, I don't have time to describe my own experience with Bay Meadows. It's not relevant to the commentary, so I'll just let it go. Okay, yeah. One, one of the things I want to say was, uh, that's the thing I love about this group. Everybody has come up with stuff that I hadn't realized or hadn't seen. And I, I, it, this is just great. It's a great way of communicating. And I just thanks for everybody for their insights. I, I, I learned a lot today so far, and I'm probably going to learn some more. I, Kathy, I liked your commentary about, the, the, I hadn't realized, but you're really, you're, it's actually right. It's an act of violence. Okay, that perpetuates a lot of this. And I had not realized, especially against animals. Okay. And one of the things I forgot to mention when I had my moment was one of the things I really loved about this was was and Kubrick would continue to do this throughout his life as as a as a filmmaker was his incredible ability to pace. Okay, his pacing in his films, I think, is second to no one. And so it's like I think that he just, you know, this was a film where he really captured the pace of what he wanted to do and uh, to express himself. And so I was just really, oh, really, you know, just really amazed by that. And it was, and again, it would be something that he would do and continue throughout his, his career. And the last thing I wanted to mention really, because I think something that Robert had talked about mentioned was concerning the, the script. And I really did think that again, even more so of a quantum leap was the script that, that uh, again, Kubrick had some, I don't know to the levels of how much control he had over the script. Obviously, he brought in Jim Thompson to do to, to, to do dialogue, and his dialogue was, this dialogue in this film was vastly superior to his first two films. And so, I mean, it just made sense. And also, Kathy mentioned, yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, Marie Windsor has the has the best funny lines in this movie. You know, I mean, she really does. The whole, the first time you see her, just the sarcastic way by which she's referring to her husband. And I, I just thought that was quite original. But everybody's sort of had the good lines and so it's like i don't know how much of that was stanley kubrick and he would go on to do better dialogue okay but you know i don't know how much of 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 uh, you know did he learn from jim thompson or did jim thompson contributor was both but you know yeah his 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 dialogue got infinitely superior and so it's like you know and then he just went from there he just went from there so those are just the comments i wanted to make but everybody great insights everybody had today just really really good so go ahead mark back to you thanks james it's stanley bob and then scott what's the backstory does anybody know what happened to the relationship with howard sackler he was not used in this film and he was a boyhood friend of stanley's from the bronx and i understand that he also went to juilliard i'm not sure what he studied there but clearly he was not used in this film I also need clarification on Cooper was given credit for the story, but Jim Thompson was given credit for the dialogue. I need clarification on exactly what the difference is. 
As far as New York versus California, I saw clear signs of New York and I heard Park Avenue mentioned in the film. But when, when, when I think it was Mike had been taking care of his sick wife, Ruthie, and he comes bounding out of his apartment and there were hills there that sure reminded me of San Francisco. So I was a little confused about that. As far as the narrator goes, I found it very helpful for me. And I think that it would it made the story much more clear for people who, who might not uh, be drawn to this movie for one of many other reasons. A couple other things. Nicky uses the excuse that he's a paraplegic. Well, if he's paralyzed from the waist down, how could he have driven the car? Although I guess, I guess, I guess you can. By the way, do you know of any racetrack where you can see the race from the parking lot? Okay, that's it for now. Thanks. All right. Bob. Well, first, put me on uh, team narrator, for sure. I think the narration in this is crackerjack. I think it's great. Uh, I don't understand the notion that how you can be negative down on this narration. It, it gives it uh, flavor. Kubrick used voiceover narration a, a ton in his cinema. So I I saw this always as like an artistic choice, not as some kind of compromise. Uh, I, I don't get that. But to answer Stanley's question about story and dialogue, story, what I was talking about in, in terms of character needs, wants, desires, goal, and obstacles, those are very much elements of story. Dialogue being what the character says, you know, Sterling Hayden's girlfriend's long monologue, Marie Windsor's dialogue, all those exchanges, Vince Edwards, you know, you know, Jim Thompson clearly contributed heavily to the dialogue spoken. He evidently did not contribute much to the plot or the story in that way. Kubrick also had the same story credit and fear and desire. I wanted to also, I wanted, and also to clarify in terms of California, New York. So precisely this, the New York elements were the Park Avenue reference in passing dialogue, which was sort of a generic reference. I didn't take that as a literal, like we are in New York and you're going to Park Avenue. It was sort of almost Park Avenue as a metaphor. The art direction, window views, New York, right? However, literally signs, the the motel as a sign identifying Apartment Association California. It's there on the sign. The California state flag is there. You see a stop sign outside the meeting apartment on Olive. And that is Olive's that that is on Olive. And it's just down from Grand, and it is in Bunker Hill. So there's steep hills. That's Bunker Hill, downtown Los Angeles, which was completely re, re sort of almost raised to the ground in the early 60s and rebuilt as a completely transformed area. There's a great film called The Exiles by Kent McKenzie that was filmed in just a few years after the killing that captures that same neighborhood. Also, the American version of M, filmed just before the killing, 
is filmed in the same neighborhood. So you can see many of the same buildings. And there were several films, so several noir films that were shot that use Bunker Hill as a really unique part of downtown. So, but the film itself, where it's actually taking place, there's a tantalizing confusion about what where it is. And it almost reflects where Kubrick was in his life at that point. He's a New York guy, but now he's working in Los Angeles. So it's like, where is he? Is he in New York? Is he in Los Angeles? And it kind of almost reflected that in a way. I, I, I want to also stress, put, put out there, actually, the continuity from Killer's Kiss to the killing, as opposed to the differences between them. I think in both of these films, very strikingly, I think, we have working class characters. We're looking at really working class characters. It's a really strong element in this. And also the Latin jazz. Same use of Latin jazz in sexualized scenes. The the sexual heat rises and Latin jazz rises in the volume. He uses that same technique here that he did in Killer's Kiss. And a lot of jazz in the soundtrack. I think there's more jazz on this soundtrack than there is Gerald Freed music. And who has the most dialogue? Speed dialogue. What, char- what actor has the most dialogue in the movie? Very debatable. It might be Marie Windsor. She might have the most dialogue. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Bob. It'll be Scott. One other character that was mentioned that falls into my theme about the people who are usually not noticed is the parking lot attendant. He existed for one purpose in real life, which was to move the barrier for me. Once the barrier was moved, I don't want him bothering me anymore. His attempt to become a real person was his downfall and had to be really shot down through the Timothy Carey, what he called him. And all of this makes me think of an alternative viewpoint of the stereotype (laughs) about Stanley Kubrick, which is coldness, lack of humanity. But isn't he really showing in a lot of his films what makes the lack of humanity? And he's commenting upon it. He comments upon it here. These people no one notices. No one will make a movie about. They're real people, real issues. In Full Metal Jacket, the system has to take the individual humanity out of people out of, in, in, in order to work as a group. In 2001, you have to make people like their computers in order to keep the mission going. In Paths of Glory, we have to take common sense and humanity out of the decision-making in order to go after a friggin' anthill. In Clockwork Orange, the same thing. Over and over again, uh, eyes wide shut, you have character lacks humanity because uh, you know he's a, he's a doctor. He has this need to go to a higher class than he belongs in. And he shot down, certainly. The most important uh, line in that movie was when he asked his wife about the, the, the babysitter. And by the way, you notice in the movie, he has no real relationship with his daughter. Most important line in the movie is, what's her name? Because he has to pretend he knows it in order to keep up the facade, but he doesn't really care enough to actually learn it. So isn't Kubrick and all these films actually commenting upon 
the lack of humanity and how either systems or society or something takes the humanity out of people that already should be there. And that uh, the cruel irony is he's the one who's being said to be lacking in humanity because the artful way in which he does it. And my final unrelated point is that whether he knew so at or not, Stanley Kubrick invented the term the money shot for the end of the movie. <laughs> great, great Scott. Stanley. Interesting. I'm dwelling on the money shot. I think I'd like to make a list of those money shots that we all know in all the films. That's a that's a great point. Mark in the chat, you you said or maybe it was David, Jim Thompson's family said that Jim went ballistic when he saw the credits and and had contributed much more than he was credited for. This ring trues, This rings true for me because I'm a member of another group where a woman named Stefano is in the group and her husband was the writer for Psycho. And she claims that he, I think his name was Joseph, did not get the credit that he should have gotten for writing of Psycho. So does that speak to the ego of these these wonderfully creative visionaries like Stanley and like Alfred? We've not talked about the theme of secrets. In this film that we just, that we've been discussing, who keeps secrets from whom in this film and in what other Stanley Kubrick films is there a, a theme of secrets? Now, I always jump way ahead to his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, because that was ablaze with the theme of secrets and underlying currents and dreams and fantasies and things not shared. What about in this film? Well, does is Johnny keep us keeping a secret from Faye? The answer is, of course he is. It, all the all the, the characters in the film, the mob, it's a secret for them because they don't know the big plan. Is George trying to keep a secret from Marie? Yeah. Is Marie keeping a secret from George? Oh, yeah. Is Val, Marie's lover, keeping a secret from Marie? And I think that if we broke it down, we, we'd get even more, yes? So in what what about in his next film? What comes after this? Is it Paths of Glory? Yes. I've, I've not thought about it. Are there secrets kept there in that film? Does, does he continue with the theme of secrets in that one? Certainly in Lolita, there are secrets. Full Metal Jacket, are there secrets? Yeah, I would say. Things not shared. Something to think about. I'm done. Very Stanley. Jonathan and Nick will be our last two speakers. Okay, a quick note on Carrie and a longer one on Stefano. Timothy Carey is actually one of the people on the cover. Is t- a shot of Timothy Carey from the killing, specifically, is one of the people on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Unfortunately, his head is 100% concealed by George Harrison. So it's not visible on the final album cover at all. But it is a shot of him from the killing. I find the story of Joseph Stefano, the scriptwriter for Psycho, to be quite interesting because 
he arguably made more original contributions than most screenwriters for Hitchcock. Most screenwriters for Hitchcock just followed Hitchcock's template of Hitchcock's detailed directions of what he should do. And Stefano arguably brought a lot more original ideas of his own to Psycho than most screenwriters for Hitchcock. He later became the director of the television series The Outer Limits and wrote 12 of its most acclaimed episodes. And he was originally hired simply as a consultant. And then the original producer said, this guy has much better ideas than I do. So he just turned it over to him. But Stefano was asked by Hitchcock. Stefano is generally credited as having much stronger feminist sensibilities than Alfred Hitchcock. So the movie Psycho is an odd overlay of Stefano's authentic feminism and Hitchcock's misogyny in some ways. Stefano was asked by Hitchcock to write the screenplay for Marnie. And there's a controversial rape scene in there. And he told Hitchcock he would only write the screenplay if the rape scene was 100% eliminated. And then Hitchcock let him go and hired someone else. And then after The Outer Limits, Stefano was set for life financially due to res residuals from Psycho. But after The Outer Limits, his Stefano did very little work. All right. Thank you, Jonathan and Nick. Yeah, I just to follow up on my question, because I, I wasn't sure why that was that every type of movie from that era has that embellished language. And I just wanted to know if anybody could opine on where that came from and why that was at the time. Even the music, the use of music, uh, it just seemed like there was a, a style back then. They stuck to that style and it was a mold. And, you know, what, what led to the breaking of that mold? Because, you know, he was ahead of his time even with this film, but still he, he adhered to some of the old traditions. And I just would like to know if anybody has an answer for that. That's how that's how gangsters talked. <laughs> I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was that complex. It goes back. It goes back to the. It goes back to the '30s movies. It was yeah. New York. You know, yes. you know, a lot of those characters, James Cagney, Edward G. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They were all kind of from New York. Yeah, and so yeah. kind of that New Yorky. That's you know. That's the only thing that made it. Made those think damn it, New Yorkers, they can't. That's you know. the only thing that made me think it wasn't California, frankly, because yeah. <laughs> I always, to me, I, I just always saw California in it. I mean, but yes, there's a number of actors who talk like they're right out of the New York streets. <laughs> right, Brian. That's a great point. There's a, there is this weird thing in crime movies from from the 30s through the 50s, even the early 60s, set in Los Angeles. And they're talking like New Yorkers. They're like, what the fuck? I mean, and it's either uh, New York or Chicago. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, and yeah, okay, maybe transplants, maybe, you know, they might be transplanted. But yeah, it wasn't until the 60s really where that got corrected, you know. But yeah, it was, it, it showed the impact of James Cagney. By the way, one of Kubrick's favorite actors. Favorites, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and it really was. I mean, you can hear that with most of the actors here. They were very influenced by the Cagney style. He was he was huge. Yes, he was. I think it's also a way to get across people being from a lower socioeconomic status, as well as right. saying that maybe of a certain ethnicities. A hundred percent. Yes. Because oh, yeah. uh, as class is so much an undertone in the film. Well. Really, you guys brought your A game. Thank you. Let's keep it up. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.
Guys, have a good weekend, okay? Bye, Kathy. Yeah. Bye, Matt. Bye, now. Okay. You too. Enjoy everybody. everybody's comments. Thank Bye, you. Bye, Robert. Yes. Everybody. Well done. done boy. All right. Kubrick's Universe would like to thank Mark Lentz and James Robert Sherman and all at the SCAS Academy, Jonathan Harvey, Stan Dorfman, Kathy Metzger, David Sukavati, Scott Edwards, Brian Kahn, and Robert Kohler. We will be exploring Kubrick's fourth feature film, Paths of Glory, from 1957, in an upcoming episode of Kubrick's Universe as part of our Decatria Kubrick season. Don't forget to check out our two Facebook groups, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. Also, we have two great YouTube channels, again, for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. And please do head over to Patreon.com when you get a sec, search for Kubrick's Universe, and offer your support for our show so we can keep bringing it to you for as little as one English pound or one U.S. doll hair per month. On behalf of our producer, editor, and all-around bon vivant, Stephen Rigg, I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong, saying thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a great holiday season and a happy new year. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Mm-hmm.